you're listening to Tin Pod Radio. I'm Adam P. Nave, co-writer of The Once and Future Queen. Uh, the start out things, uh, I'm sure it's a question you've gotten 8 billion times every time you do anything. Can you tell uh, people, what is steampunk? Alrighty. Well, for the non-initiative people, steampunk is a coin term that started in the 1980s. It was written in a book, uh, and it was kind of omissed. It later became translated to what we call the short, short version is Victorian science fiction. So uh, imagine, if you will, uh, a time in history where we were in the Victorian era, which is a historically period actual time, and throw into it a bunch of things from the future. Well, nobody ever wrote about that, and nobody imagined what we would have in the 21st century. So in essence, we are, through steampunk, we are reimagining what people in the Victorian era would have imagined the future to be with a little bit of knowledge. Now, we have some people in our groups that are purists, and these purists are the type of people who believe that everything has to start with Victorian or Edwardian first, and then you move and bring things into the future. And you have other people like me who believe that things that I have nowadays can be adjusted or pushed back in time to have a Victorian or Edwardian look. Therefore, I approach steampunk from the future to the past, and others approach it from the past to the future. So, uh, in essence, Victorian science fiction and steampunk is really what you make it. And I always try to tell the young kids about that and the people who try to be steampunk snobs because there is no written rule. So, uh, what you do is more like when you see somebody take a, a, a laptop and give it a steampunk look or tape uh, something, like a, a, even like a cell phone, and give it a steampunk look. Right. In my case in particular, because of what I do or how I do it, I've come to find that my niche in the steampunk community is making things out of leather. And I learned how to play with leather and use it as a great building material when I was uh, probably about 12 years, 13 years old. And from then it stuck with me. Uh, and then I got back into it a couple years ago. And I like to think of the leather crafting as a way to make modern things look old-fashioned, not completely Western, but give them a type of embellishment that is not necessarily metal and gears. Now, I tool gears onto some of my leather crafting, as you probably saw at the Maker Fair this year, uh, to give it a more mechanical look. And and I, I interpret it through leather. And there are some people, as you, as you mentioned, that have taken laptops and redone them. Uh, they take uh, IBM keyboards and turn them to look like 1920s uh, typewriters. And if you ever watch the show Warehouse 13, the computer that they had was actually done by one of the guys in California who unfortunately passed away in a car accident, I believe, about two years ago. And he's the, one of the predecessors that did the keyboard conversions. Um, and they had a mouse, and the the uh, flat screen monitor was embellished all the way around with a gilded frame, and it looked like it was on a marble base, which was just a block of wood covered in contact paper. But all of those changes that make our modern things that are mass-produced, cold-manufactured, look like old-fashioned, hand-embellished, hand-created, time-honored 
pieces is what makes steampunk stand out in everybody's eyes because it's not just a thing, it's a beautiful thing. It's a very creative thing, and it's artistic, but it also has a function. Yeah, uh, one of the things when I see steampunk it reminds me of, even though it's not a, a, a direct overlap in description, is when people look at steampunk and misinterpret it, it's almost the way people misinterpreted it is goth stuff because goth stuff was fashion it was storytelling it was dance it was cosplay it was everything and steampunk does that too there's cosplay elements there's art elements there's story elements uh do you find that be true like steampunk is not one thing it's a whole bunch of things that is very correct and uh we come to find that in steampunk because there is no set written rules that steampunk turns into this thing that moves around it it breaks the frontiers and the bubbles of being that one thing you have steampunk pirates you have steampunk goth you have clock punk uh which which is functional gears and everything winds up uh you have steampunk rococo which uh rococo uh which is very colorful uh, and they add other embellishments that are not period. And then you have the steampunk western. You have the diesel punk, which pushes it to the boundaries of war. And then you have the autumn punk, which is the the steampunkers that would have survived after World War, whatever. And there was a nuclear fallout. And a lot of these people have glowing, uh, glowing things on them and their neons. Uh, many of them mix them up with... Um, Adam punk is also kind of like a subgenre of the gothic, uh, where they wear, you know, all the, the, the other things that glow in the dark kind of a thing. Uh, what Do you remember what the first thing is you encountered steampunk through? Either retroly, like you didn't know at the time was steampunk, or you could see for sure it was steampunk? I would say that the point where I noticed steampunk was in some sort of image and i can't place it right now that's probably one question that has not been asked of me to actually nail down so you got a good question um i do know that i saw a gentleman at uh megacon about 2000 and uh, i want to say six maybe eight he was thin he was as tall as I was, or maybe taller, he was with a young lady who wore an adventure-type outfit. He had a coachman's hat that he had bought from Australia. He was wearing platform shoes that looked like they were straight out of a gothic revival. He had a lantern with him that was very interesting, and a jacket that was made of leather, and I could tell he was sweating his, you know, his hiney off in it, because... Back then, Megacon wasn't so big. And his look, his way of, of whatever it was, was very different. And I had to stop him, take a few photos. And I asked him, you know, what's this all about? And and then he said, this is steampunk. And it, it caught me. And it wasn't until many months later that I was like, wait a minute, what was this guy all about? And Tim Ramsey was his name. And he, he became the president of the Central Florida Steampunk Association, which is our Facebook page that you can go search for. Um, type cfsa.us into a web browser, and it'll take you to the Facebook page of the Central Florida Steampunk Association. We've got about 3,000 members, maybe more already. And because of Tim and his wife, uh, wonderful people, uh, very hospital and uh, you know hospitable and everything, is is where I found steampunk. 
And after that, I kept searching and looking and I went online and I did the Google image search and I did a few other things. And then I found the beauty in it. I found the art and I studied architecture. I'm a project engineer by trade. I do plans for a living. So I thought, well, if all of this stuff came from the Victorian era, which was a very robust and detailed time period, then why can't I use my architectural background, my computer knowledge to create my own stuff? And that's where it took off. And when I was asked, you know, Juice, what do you do? What can you do for steampunk? I looked around and I said, well, I think I can do something made out of leather. It's a material that I know. I'm not very good with metalworking. I'm horrible with electronics. And I'm not a mechanical engineer to dominate the gear portion of it. But I can make accessories and I can make 3D objects from flat paper because I think that way. And that's where it started back in 2005. Yeah, I've been at it for about five years now, uh, since 2012, sorry. And so in 2012 is where I opened up Grassroots Leather as a business after having made my first top hat. And uh, the rest is is rolling history. Uh, With the rise of steampunk uh, in a way seeping its way into mainstream, like you see it in all... mainstream stores and stuff now do you think that has been beneficial for steampunk works uh such as yours and artists such as yourself or has it been uh like a deterrent to it okay not understanding the the question a little bit uh like what do you think steampunk stuff appearing in like walmart or halloween stores is good for artists such as yourself well I've had the discussion with our friends, and uh, it doesn't hurt me. Uh, I've seen some of the stuff that the Halloween stores carry for for steampunk shoulders, and, you know, I can put mine next to it, and people will very easily be able to tell the difference, you know, between one of my shoulder pieces or arm pieces or any of my accessories to any Halloween store. They have to mass-produce things on the cheap. So the materials they're using are fake leathers, foams, mass-produced and mass-stitched with the same patterns. And it takes away from the reality of what steampunk is because if you think about it, the steampunk stuff was handmade, customized. It was made, you know, you went to a craftsman back then or a shoeman, a shoemaker, for, for a very good example, and he would he would make a mold of your feet. And he would make the shoes to fit your feet. And once those shoes were made, you felt like your shoes were part of you. Shoes nowadays are mass-produced on a standard model. Not everybody's foot is the same. The shoemaker would take maybe a week to make you a great pair of shoes. Nowadays, they punch them out in a day. So seeing the mass production of Walmart and some of this other stuff, it helps get the name out there. That's for sure. You know, you can really tell that people are starting to pick up on what steampunk is and what it should look like. And it's great that I was able to partake in a in an event this year with the 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 Hope and Help Company. Uh, it's a charity organization, and they did this year's headdress ball. And this year's headdress ball was all about steampunk, and I was. Uh, tasked to be the embodiment of steampunk and we were the characters for their gala and i was challenged to get as many people as i could uh to get into this event because they wanted real steampunk creators to be in this uh, they they made a mistake because they said get as many people as you want and 
they thought that I would get maybe a dozen. Um, when I reminded the lady that I was the vice president slash second in charge for the Central Florida Steampunk Association, or one of the people who founded the members, because we really don't have a second in charge. Uh, everybody who's second in charge is second in charge. Uh, I had over 50 people. <laughs> and they started screaming and batting down the doors and saying, stop, we can't have that many people. <laughs> and I had to tell people, well, I've got to, you know, shy a few people away. Uh, if you have kids, unfortunately, you know, we got to remind you this is for an over 21 because this is an adult thing. Uh, so there were a few families that, that I had to kind of kick out of the, the sex selectioning. I had to do the, the whole, you know, American Idol type judging and pick people from a hat to be, uh, to be honest and, and, and gracious because everybody that I picked knew what they were doing. So Walmart, Halloween stores, geek.com, to name a few. You can go on there and get goggles and you can you can buy stuff. Yeah. To me, it doesn't affect me. People will still come to get real leather crafted, very heavy duty, very customized and personal artwork things. Uh, yeah, it takes away a bit of business, but I do this as a hobby compared to other people. I have a regular job, so I don't live by this art. I wish I could, but it doesn't hurt me. It just helps to get the word out. And people like you that are genuinely interested and pushing to see and to hear what it's all about from the real makers when they see them, that's what really helps us. Uh, one of the things, like when I first started going to Maker Fair, which was probably like four, four or five years ago, I think, uh, right away they were a, a steampunk influence there right away and it just clicked like of course there would be steampunk at a maker fair like you would <laughs> automatically i mean that makes just perfect sense why i, I didn't ever thought of it i should have thought of that going through the door that there's going to be steampunk there is that kind of a great marriage like maker communities with like steampunk well not only is it a great marriage but when you when you also hear this part and it also makes even more sense that our steampunk group, again, Central Florida Steampunk Association, had the great privilege to have a great leader, and he got as many people from different sectors of life together. And unfortunately, he's not with us. I say, you know, I speak to him in the past. He's not dead. He just moved on to other things. Uh, Tim is still around, but he, he just stopped doing the steampunk thing. Uh, he got us together with a great group of folks. And one of these people was uh, Mike Bacala, who's a professor at, uh, at an institute right now. And Mike uh, and his wife, Tracy, uh, who's, he's, he's a teacher and she works on some other stuff. But uh, Mike was asking, like, how can we push steampunk further? And what could we do to maybe show other people? Because he found that, you know, we were a great deal of folks that were trying to get together in people's houses at least once a month, doing get-togethers and what we call tinker nights. And he's like, well, what would you guys think of having a space that we could do all of this stuff with, like, tools, like like a warehouse? And, and we kind of looked at him and just kind of stopped and said, what are you thinking about? So he said, well, I'm part of the Maker Fair maker organization. And we all, you know, had to stop and go, okay, you need to introduce yourself better now. And now you need to tell us what this was all about. So Mike went ahead and gave us a spiel and talked to us about it. And we found out that he was a paying member of the maker organization. Um, and the makers ask for $50, I think it is, uh, a month uh, for their membership of things they do. But they get to, to use maker spaces around the world. 
And these guys have a wonderful organization where they teach everything that you saw at the Maker Faire. That's what they teach. They they teach people the the necessary skills to computer code, to program, to make robotics, to race them, to do things, to tinker, to take things apart, to figure out how they work. And he was looking at us and saying, steampunk is exactly that. So why don't you guys come out to the Maker Faire, uh, to the Maker Space in Longwood, and we can have our Tinker Nights there. It's a public building. It's a warehouse. We have a room. Uh, we've got a whiteboard. We can do classes. And everybody lit up. And after that, it would became part of our monthly schedule where we had uh, one day a month a meeting at somebody's home hosted by whoever who wanted to host it. We would have a, a monthly organization, very free uh, none of this cost anything. We, we don't charge anything in, in the CFSA. Uh, but we had a very uh, potluck-type style meetings. People got together. We talked. And then another day in the in the month, we had Tinker Nights, open Tinker Nights. And people would bring the projects that they were working on. Um, we tried to schedule classes for Tinker Nights at one time. So we had a sewing class uh, taught by uh, Dolly. And we had uh, LED workshops. We had leather crafting taught by me. And we had a few other people who also knew leather crafts. So we started teaching as a group. Um, we had other folks that had Victorian and historian and, and literature knowledge. So they shared stories. And we talked about the good, the bad, and the ugly of the Victorian times. So we started to create this maker steampunk group. And then Mike said, hey, why don't you guys join us at the Maker Fair, which was back then the Mini Maker. And it was held at the Orlando Museum of Science, the Orlando Science Museum. And we started probably back then when you saw us. And we were on the fifth floor. We were next to the dinosaurs that year uh, in the in the main. We were in the hallway. We didn't get into the to the dinosaur room until the next year. So we started in the hallway by the staircase with a couple of tables, some things we had made. I had a few things. My clothes were not as good as what I have now. A lot of stuff was just starting up. And we showed people what steampunk was. And and just like you said, it would it makes sense that they're there. And it's because of Mike and the maker organization that we decided that the maker organization needed us and we needed them. And we have never we have always from then on tried to be included and inclusive of any of the makers and also be part of their maker organization and maker fair. This year, uh, which is my sixth year, I think we had one of the largest maker fairs. Second year, it was held and hosted at the Orlando Fairgrounds. Uh, this year, Delaney, who is the president, uh, current president of the Central Florida Steampunk Association, she was uh, very on board and secondhand to Ian, who is one of the organizers of the maker fair. She helped organize the spirit building so that the robotics and all the other people had their area and all of the geekdom, fandom, cosplay, all of that stuff had one other area. So steampunk and everybody who had anything that was close to relationship with us ended up on that side of the spirit building. And as you saw this year, we had what looked to be a pavilion going and we had scenery, we had tables, we had people who had never made before got out there and made next to us. This year, we had a person dedicated to the tea dueling. We had a person dedicated to just the steampunk information. We had other people who were vendors of steampunk, you know, accessories. Uh, 
I put my booth up in a split formation that I've done for quite a few years because I felt that I had to be part of the maker group and show people and show kids. So I have my store with inventory items that I have on one side. I have a table for showing off the stuff that I do and that I wear. And then I take a corner of that table and I put one of my granite slabs down there and I charge the parents $5 for the materials that I use, but I give them a 10 minute to 15 minute class. So each kid that comes up gets a personalized class. They get to make their own bracelet. They, they get to use the tools. They get to hammer away. They get to learn what leather craft is and they get to see, they get to ask any questions. And there's a little dialogue and you can see how their eyes light up when they're banging on the table. The parents are always scared, thinking they're going to hit my hand. Uh, and then, you know, a couple years back, we we discovered that New Zealand, who's one of the great endeavor and creators of things steampunk, they have a whole steampunk city now. You really have to look that one up. I forgot the name of it. Um, they created a, a a sport. They said, you know, we got to we got to do something so that steampunks have something to do besides just, you know, sit here and look pretty. So they came up with something called teapot racing. And they said, well, take an old RC car, not one of these huge, you know, hobby stuff, just the store-bought kind. Make sure it measures no more than 30 centimeters by 30 centimeters by 40 centimeters, and we'll make a track for it. And for the non-international uh, uh, measurement, that's 11 and 3 fourths of an inch, no, 11 and 7 eighths by 11 and 7 eighths by 15 and 3 fourths of an inch. So shy of 12 inches by 16 inches. Uh, so if you have a cube that size and your car fits in it, you'll fit through the track. If your car's any bigger than that, when you're finished with it, then you're not going to fit through the track and you get points deducted. So these guys in New Zealand came up with this idea, and one of their guys had some hand sketch stuff. And about two or three years back, I got a hold of it. And again, using my ability, my knowledge, and my just spare time, I made the set of plans. And if you go to Teapot Racing Florida or Teapot Racing USA on Facebook, you can find on the file section a PDF of the Splendid Teapot Racing. Uh, it's a PDF. It's about 12 megabytes big, so it's, it's a hefty file. And it has everything. It has uh, all the rules, the regulations, the sizes, the track, how to make it, how to lay it out, how to use it. I even included signs that you can cut apart and just mount on boards and you can put onto it. Uh, the guys in New Zealand have made new track parts. I've got to sit down and, and work those into the rest of the package. Uh, but I had to make them myself before I could you know, do it. So they made a new, a new uh, ramp set. They made a new ball pit. They made a new roundabout. So all those things I try to make ahead of time, and then I know how I can make plans based on their drawings. So I understand it. Uh, so this year we did bigger and better. We won four ribbons, four blue ribbons for all our, our hard work and got it, getting everybody involved. You know, we heard that everybody talked about us, that loved what we did. And like you, very curious, and they got their questions answered. A lot of people who didn't believe in steampunk after this weekend, they're gung-ho, and they're waiting to see what we're going to do to get them involved in it. And, and we're not afraid to bring as many people as they want to as long as they remember steampunk is what you make it. You know, don't look down on the newbies because everybody starts somewhere. And don't be a complete snob that you think you know that steampunk is when you just started. Or if you've been there for a long time, remember that people start somewhere. So you have to help the little kids make it out of foam and paper, and you have the adults that make it out of fabric and metals. Uh, I have a local, actually, a local uh, uh, maker space uh, in Melbourne, which is where I live, and mm -hmm. and we belong to it. And one of the things I like doing is going there and talking to them, and actually we're going to work on projects together in the future. Um, the with steampunk and 
uh, on your end, do you do very much work with other people in other lines? Like you said, you don't do as much mechanical stuff as other people or something. Have you did any projects together with other uh, makers in steampunk stuff? Oh, of course, of course. That's that's the thing about the maker part. You know, you you have you can't always do everything by yourself. So. Uh, when I've done a lot of my projects that have to do with leather and I need help with something that I can't figure out, whether it's, you know, getting lights on something or making something move in mechanical or you name it. I mean, you, you really think about what those little things that I don't know about. I've had to go and look and talk to people and, and get together with other steampunk makers that have the ability. I had to learn how to, how to sew. I had to learn how to uh, almost repair a, a sewing machine and, I remember my mom is the one that she always made my, my costumes when I was a kid, but now I make my own, and, and my mom looks at me in, in, in awe because she never expected that I would go that far, and she sees I, I, I actually do a pretty decent job. <laughs> so it's kind of a pat on my own back going, I can impress my mom, that's good. So, so yeah, we, we touch on each other's backs, and we try to, to compliment each other. Anybody who's ever needed help with anything that has to do with leather crafting, if I can't figure it out, I always send them to somebody that I know who's better than I am or who has the same ethics uh, because that I'm really big on. You know, if, if you don't have business ethics, I can't I can't do business with people. I, I'm really stubborn about that. If you have two people designing the same thing, it's not going to work. You go in three different directions. So my, my trade, my business, my career has taught me how to be a good team player and not to step on other people's toes, but also to, to learn who knows what and, and to gather a network of people that can help me out when I, when I can't do things. So. Uh, what would you say was your most uh, complex and maybe most difficult work you've done? <laughs> it's not even steampunk. Um, the most difficult thing I've, I've done so far is actually a version of Wonder Woman that I did for a young lady and uh, she hired me to do some costume stuff and I spent three years under her thumb <laughs> Uh, making things for her left and right and a lot of those uh, things because she was a curvy young lady and she also gave me some things that I had never attempted to do uh, it became a really really big challenge when it came to making corsets out of leather uh, making armor uh, that I had never done so you know I thought that my place in steampunk would be making leather accessories and boxes and cases and, and these little types of things. Maybe make a gauntlet out of a pattern that I found here and there. But this girl pushed me and, and uh, she ended up, you know, having three or four outfits made and making a helmet for her was the biggest and toughest thing that I had. And I told her from day one, your helmet is going to be the bane of my existence. It's going to be my nightmare because in order to get that done, I have to do things that I haven't done before and I'm it's I'm not ready for in certain aspects because I was doing leather crafting. I didn't want to have to do molding and all this other types of things that didn't have to do with it. But you know what? It, it worked. I made it. I did it. I got it done. It looks good. Maybe not great. I could probably do better, but I got through it and, and I, I'm grateful for all the challenges. Uh, with uh, leather work, a lot of people consider it, well, some people might say old-fashioned is a bad word, but a old-school and old-times uh, craft. Is mm -hmm. there a lot to be done with it that you learn from, or is it basics from the beginning and it's just a way of doing it differently? I'd like to say that leather crafting is an old trade. It is a very almost forgotten uh, craft. 
And it's also something that's very sought in certain circles because of just the, the, the need to do things a certain way in order to get them right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, anything that I do steampunk-wise with leather is still rinse and repeat of Leather 101. You, you, you have to go back to the basics. You have to learn how to cut leather. You have to learn how to pick your leather. You have to learn how to mold leather. You have to learn how to tool leather. You have to learn armor and a bunch of other things that you would learn from any other trade that had to do with leather crafting. The difference is that you add metal finishes. Uh, you don't use a lot of the uh, styles of tooling uh, that you see around the world. Uh, a lot of that Western stuff, uh, you don't see that. And, and it goes from there. It's all compounded on what the basics are. That, I can tell you, is, is always there. And I think for just about everything that we do with steampunk, it still goes back to the basics. You have to learn jewelry, you know, how to mold the metal, how to bend it, how to, how to do regular jewelry making. I, I have books in my library on how to do those things in order for me to do uh, pendants and, and a lot of the stuff that I attach. Instead of having to buy hardware, you make the hardware. That's the other part that also gets because then it gets costly because you have to buy the raw materials to make some of these things because you can't just go buy them at the where at the store. Can't walk into Michaels and buy a bunch of exactly the way that I want two gears. I have to make them sometimes. Uh, do you find that you're constantly learning new techniques of doing stuff? Yes, yes, yes. That is that is something we always find ourselves exploring new techniques, new ideas, and also old techniques. You know, sometimes it's like, how do we make this jewelry stuff? Because it's sometimes a lost art. So we also find ourselves figuring out how it is that they did it back then in order to do it now with modern tools and make it look like it was done back then. Because, you know, we're still trying to make it look Victorian. So we or, you know, Edwardian or very handmade. But nowadays we have a bunch of power tools that can do half the stuff that they used to do and take months. Ask any woodworker if they would rather have a power lathe to, to you know, turn a table leg or would they have a pedal version that hand cranks it and they have to sand everything by hand. Any, any metalsmith, a blacksmith that has to make a blade, if they don't get to use the power hammer nowadays, they, they won't do it because it's, it's extremely hard to, to pick up that hammer for, you know, a month and pound and fold and pound and fold. Leather crafting, unfortunately, there's not a lot of modern tools except for a clicker so that you can remake the same cut piece a bunch of times, but those clickers are expensive. And we've found that if you buy a 12-ton a press from Harbor Freight, and I think uh, you add on to it uh, kind of spring mechanism, and there's a couple of other things you need to add for probably 150 to $200, you can make your own clicker. And, and this thing can, can punch out with a metal blade shaped in whatever it is that you want to cut. You know, you can punch out 10 or 12 pieces instead of having to cut them by hand. And then there are sewing machines that help you sew, but these sewing machines have been around for hundreds of years. And Singer, who's a company that's made them, and Cobra, who's another company that makes them, you can buy them, but they'll cost you thousands of dollars. You know, leather crafting tools are, are not new. They're, they've been around for a while, but it's it's... It's still the way that I make it, the, the things that I do with it. Some of them are really, really old ways, and some of them are completely new. Making a gauntlet so that a bracer for your arm that holds your phone and that it can pivot so that you can take pictures with it, which is one of the pieces I had on my table. 
you know, it's one of those things and you go, okay, that's new. Exactly. Nobody would have thought of that because that technology didn't exist. Uh, do you remember the first piece you made that would be considered steampunk? Yeah, and you're going to see it in the photo that I send you next to one of the last pieces that I made. Um, it was a top hat. I made a leather top hat out of uh, four or five ounce leather, which is about an eighth of an inch thick. And I bought $50 worth of leather, and I bought 30 or $40 worth of tools, and I got to work. And about 40 hours later, I had made a top hat, and I was quite happy with my outcome. I went to the guys at Tandy Leather, and I asked them, what do you guys think? And all of them had to take a step back. They had to grab the hat and look at it. They were impressed because they didn't expect me for the first time ever since I was 14 years old to be able to produce a hat that could easily sell for $300 to $400. Uh on the on the first try you know and and i remember that seth who was the manager looked at me and he's like you you did this i'm like yeah i did that and he's like you did this like like you just came in and for the first that's this is your first project yeah and his co-workers looked at him and looked at me and they 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 were like okay you are a force to be reckoned with if you are accepting of these challenges and, and, and if you think that you can keep doing work like this then the only place to go from there is up you know they saw that i had details that i missed that not all my edges were burnished that some of these things but they didn't criticize it they just said if this is your first project you're way above and beyond what we expected and we hope that you learn your mistakes and keep going and that's when i had to go do homework and research and find out what it is that i messed up uh, is there any project or type of project you would like to do that you haven't had a chance to do yet? Hmm. I am working on a remake of my armor. I believe you saw it on the table. A lot of people think of it as an Iron Man, a leather Iron Man. And it was created by an image that I found of a dwarf in this armor with a gun or something or other. He had like this big, huge... Uh, the gun with it that ends up, that looks like a trumpet at the end of it. Uh, <sighs> Shoot. It's like a musket. One of those big, huge, old-fashioned muskets. I think they call it a, a, a buster. Or... Yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. One of those buster weapons. So um, that was the image that I found. And I said, I want to make this steampunk. And somebody looked at me and was like, yeah, I don't get it. I'm like, don't worry, I'll do it. So I went ahead and I started making the armor. I studied a few things. Um... I took apart a set of football pads that I got from a, uh, a store that sells used football pads because I didn't want to spend a whole lot on them. And for like three or four dollars, I think it was that it cost me, I got a kid's size football pads, took it apart, figured out the pattern, made it out of leather, and I made the armor that you saw that was on the maker, on the maker, uh, oh, the maker fair table. That project I have a version two of, and it does look a little more Iron Man-ish. Uh, because I have the graphic here next to my workbench almost every day, and I look at it and I cry because I still haven't gotten around to making it. Uh, but it's also because it's going to be about 12 steps up from what I've done so far. And that aspect that it's going to have a lot of electronics. It's going to probably have some type of circulating ventilation system because I do suffer from claustrophobia. Um, but it's only when I feel that there is, like if I'm in an enclosed space where there is no ventilation whatsoever, and I and I unfortunately think about that the closed space is getting smaller, then I start to get a little panicky. So in order to be in a fully enclosed suit, which this one will be at least from my waist up, 
I know that I don't want to feel like I'm boxing myself in. And I know that if I apply some airflow to it with a fan or some other stuff that I, I'll, I'll be able to get over that claustrophobic feeling and I'll be able to do it. But that also means that I've got to figure out how to get a fan into the system, how to get pipes to work so that it looks steampunk. It doesn't look like I'm putting a fan into this thing. You know, all this stuff has to be hidden. And then also make it so that it looks just as amazing or more than amazing than the one that I have now. And thank goodness that the, the image is good enough for me to more or less just follow and bring to reality. Uh, but it's been a while, and I, I really need to get onto it. Hopefully, 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 I might be able to make it for next year's uh, Megacon. But it also depends on help I can get from a couple of electrical people because the electrical part is where I'm going to be going. I need help with this. Uh, you help. I'll I'll make the space for everything. I'll leave you to put it away. You know, and and this is the space you have to work in, and you have to put all that stuff in here. Uh, you tell me if I need wires, and I'll run them because that's physical. Uh, but any of the electronics, the charges, and how much battery I need, that I'll need them to tell me then I'll work it all through. So hopefully if I can do that, then I will have a suit of armor that is made of leather, that is very steampunk, that is going to be my my personal character's second version, and it's going to have a Nixie clock in the back. It might have functioning bellows that will pump air through and fans that will circulate uh, if I can manage to get some steam or some CO2 so that it pumps around like a cool air type of thing. Also, so I've got a lot of plans laid on this thing, but it's just I've been working on a Canadian version of Wonder Woman that I'm trying to finish now. And as we speak, I'm actually painting uh, and trying to get it out the door this year so that I can finally get on to move to my things because I want to do art. I would like to do some steampunk sculptures uh, in Puerto Rican version because uh, I am from Puerto Rico and I want to do Puerto Rican steampunk uh, with some characters from back home. Uh, I, I just want it to be art. I don't want it to be something that I wear. Uh, and I've got the, the idea set, but I need to sit down and do it. So until I get commissions out of the way, I can't move on to my own personal things because the paying commissions means I get money and I got something to do and it keeps paying the bills. So you described like everything from building armor for commissions to bracelets. Uh, for people who might want to ask, and they usually do, uh, for artists I have interviewed and stuff, what type of, type of commissions are you open for? Just like any ideas I might approach you with and you discuss it? or Yeah, I, I do open myself up to anything that anyone throws at me. I will try to figure if it's something that I've done before and or something that I want to do and be honest with the people and say, yeah, I'll do it. Uh, commissions for clothing is the hard part because... Like right now, what I'm doing is making a leather Greek armor, and this is a one-piece corset that wraps around the body made of leather, stitched up by hand. There's probably about six yards of, of lacing on the inside of this to stitch it all together. And I'll tell you, just putting that together in itself was almost a week and a half to two weeks of sewing. I had a problem, and this was miscommunication, a little bit of issues here and there, kind of a thing where I, I kind of said, hey, I need this from the client. And if I have this, I can work really well. If I don't have this, then I can't. And the client tried to kind of work their way around the, the request. 
And unfortunately, it wasn't until this year that they finally figured, with my help, unfortunately, uh, how to get a life cast in my hands. Uh, it's very difficult for me to do anything out of leather if I don't have the person's measurements. But when it's body, uh, especially like this, where women are very curvy, uh, it's very hard to fashion anything out of leather for them if I don't have them here to, to work with. And since I do everything when my kids go to sleep after nine o'clock, that means that I'm at the mercy of, you know, can you be here for me to measure, to, to fit you, to do all this other stuff? So one of my requisites... Uh, you know, requirements for working with anything is you have to provide for me a light guest. I need a mannequin that is you in my workshop that fits you if I'm going to do clothing or anything else. Uh, if it's going to be a bracer for the arm or one of those things that's a one-off piece that I, I can fashion easily, and I know what they are, then I can do anything I want to. But a corset, I've more or less told myself, yeah, unless they're going to provide for me a mannequin, it ain't happening again because two years working on this project, trying to get it out until they finally got me what I needed. And the worst part is I had to fix that thing too. So that was an issue. I'm like, I don't, it takes up too much time that's wasted in, in the creation process. Plus it also means I have to spend on materials that I don't want to have here. Like, why do I want to have a bunch of uh, mold if I'm not going to be molding, casting things all the time? It just doesn't work for me if I'm just doing leather craft. But takes away from the essence of what I am to then become a prop master. And I'm not in the mood to do that because prop masters are a dime a dozen. There's 100,000 prop masters out there working with, with uh, film industries. I, I don't need to compete with them. I, I don't want to. Yeah. Is there anything that you don't do that you've been asked, like uh, just something that's maybe aggravating, too much work, just would take up too much of your time or anything like that? Well, after having made a prop with electricity and with a bunch of things, anything that has to do with prop stuff like that, I, I won't be doing. Uh, I, I it, it took too much time out of me. The, the price estimate that I gave the person, unfortunately, in the end, the amount of time and materials that I ended up spending was probably five times that what I charged, which means that I lost, you know, way, way too much time and materials on my end. And what I made for them was wonderful. They love what they have, but I always look at it and go, what I charged for it was dimes. And I could have had, you know, $20 worth of value into that because it was, it was, it was time consuming. It was a lot of stuff that I had never done. A lot of materials that I had to buy that I hadn't done with worked before. And it also got the shop horribly dirty compared to other stuff. So every time I do one of those props, I got to tear this shop apart, clean every corner. Cause I work in a corner of my garage you know, make sure that the car's not getting fiberglass dust into the motor. And if I work with any other materials, it's always a bit of an issue. Uh, I'm not going to do helmets unless it's some type of leather helmet that I need to work on that is easy to do. I'm not going to do the sculpted type because the Wonder Woman helmet is wonderful, but I ended up having to do that one out of paper and fiberglass and resin. Again, getting away from what I want to do with the leather. So I'll best determine when people approach me, go, OK, yeah, I can do that or not. But I don't, I don't, I try to take up as many challenges as possible because even then it's, it's like, it's fun to do. And, and when I talk to people, I let them know this is a hobby. I do this at my own pace. If you want to rush me, you're going to lose. If you don't rush me, you'll see the process. You'll learn with me. You'll, you'll see how this all comes down and you're not going to be paying probably as much as somebody else who's well established, but you're still going to get what you want. You know, I'll yeah. still make sure that I, it gets done. Well, uh, one 
one of the things I always look forward to when I go to Maker Faire is the the different people who exhibit steampunk uh, works of art there. So uh, I'd like to thank you for joining me tonight and having an interesting discussion about steampunk. Before we go, would you like to give everybody the information and where they can find you online and such? Yes, sir. So thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. I hope I haven't bored your ears off on, on what I do. Um, thank you for, for being interested in steampunk. And uh, thank you for knowing that we're here. Uh, to you personally, I'd like to let you know that there is a Melbourne uh, group of steampunk folks. You can look them up online. If you go to the CFSA page, the Central Florida Steampunk Association page, uh, if you've seen how they work now, sometimes the pages have links at the top, so you can link pages that are similar. Our group has linked up with Tampa's group, uh, Heartland, which is north of Central Florida, uh, Jacksonville, Melbourne, Orlando, and I think there's two or three other groups in Florida, Tallahassee, too. So you can find all of those groups that might be closer to your home if you'd like to talk to them. Um, they've got some wonderful people in the coast. Um, I know that one of them is actually a real rocket scientist, uh, and he loves to do this stuff. I, you know, it, it's, it's great. I urge anybody who is listening to go out there, hunt for groups, go to steampunk tendencies. Uh, try not to critique until you've actually done something, because it's hard to gauge what steampunk is until you make something. For me personally, this is a hobby that I turned into a business. My first project was a top hat. You can see pictures of that on BrassRootsLeather.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, and that's at BrassRoots underscore L-T-H-R, which is the abbreviation for leather. You can follow me at BrassRoots underscore leather at Instagram. Uh, I try to do Snapchat uh, stories every now and again, so under BrassRoots Leather also, just hunt for that and you'll find me. You'll know you found me when you find the bowler hat goggles and the mustache uh, icon. My logos are the same on all the social media. I try not to post too much. I try to get you all involved. And if anybody has any comments after this, please, you're more than welcome to visit the website, send me a message, contact me if you'd like to know more or find other people and, and be a maker. Uh, making steampunk, making other things for other punks, whether it be clock punk, diesel punk, western punk, you name it, gothic. It doesn't hurt to learn new things. Steampunk teaches you how to make anything and everything. So thank you for listening to me for a little while. Uh, keep in touch with this gentleman's uh, Ken Pod Radio, and have a great night, people. Take care of each other. Keep making, you know, stay creative and uh, and live. That This is the fun part about it. Bye-bye.